Daniel 3, um, the image of gold and the fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to the King Nebuchadnezzar, O King, live forever. You have issued a decree, O King, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, food, leader, lion, heart, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of God. And that whoever does not work down and worship with the importance of lighting burning, that there are some Jews who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your God nor worship the image of God you have set Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, or wish the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the word, flute, cheater, lyre, harp, harp, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship it, I may very well. But if you do not worship it, you will be blown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from money hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. We do not need to defend ourselves before you this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the darkness is there to save us from you. And he will rescue from your hand, O King. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your God for worship the image of God we have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered his furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, Were there three men that he they replied. He said, Look, I see four men walking on the fire, alone and unharmed, and the first looks like the son of the God. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servant of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has set his angels and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into parts of rubble. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I think it's uh, time for Sunday school for those who weren't up the front. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that you have revealed uh, to us the mystery of the gospel. Father, as it's just been explained to the kids, help us to understand the big picture of the gospel. Also, as we uh, unpack Daniel 3 this morning, Lord, so speak to us. Also to the kids who are at Sunday school, Father, we pray. Uh, that your word would touch our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you have your Bible there with you, can I uh, encourage you to keep it open uh, on Daniel 3? It's a story, I suppose, that we're all uh, very familiar with. I've heard it said that the, um, the real tragedy of modern man today is that he's a rebel without a cause. In other words, he's run out of things to die for. See, we live in an age where truth is what you make it, 
no one has a monopoly on it and after all who determines what is right or what is wrong? So why risk your life or your career prospects on something that is not certain or absolute? That's what people think today, isn't it? What you believe is your choice and if it works for you, okay, but don't impose it on me. But the situation in Daniel 3 is vastly different, isn't it? As we have three young men who are prepared to die for the cause they strongly believe in. That is to lose everything for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Haniel, Mishael and Azariah, better known in our chapter as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, would rather burn than turn from God. They would rather, deny, uh, rather die than deny him. And they have a great testimony, don't, don't they? And if we just read verses 17 and 18, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Well, that's quite a stand, isn't it? And this morning we'll focus on this statement of faith, if you like, of these three young Hebrews caught in a foreign land. And the chapter opens up with Nebuchadnezzar surrounded by people he had put into positions of authority to support his dictatorship. And Daniel goes into detail as to who they are. Satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all other provincial officials, we are told. Three times they are mentioned in this chapter, just in case you haven't got it yet. I don't know about you, but I can't help but smile when I read that. It's, also, it's almost uh, farcical, isn't it? And I think Daniel wants us to smile as to what's happening here. And indeed, if we were to understand it from God's perspective, here is something to laugh about. All the VIPs of the, of the kingdom from every district are meeting together. It's like a red square on the 1st of May, isn't it? Or uh, it's like the, uh, the Diamond Jubilee the Queen has just uh, celebrated in the last week with all the pomp and pageantry. I just like that word, pageantry. It's... Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Have you ever watched TV and seen the images of North Korea? You know, you see thousands parading on the streets, all in uniform, all with that goose step, watching the president and his lieutenants. Most of the country is starving to death, but they take it all so seriously. It's interesting, isn't it? But he who sits in the heavens laughs, doesn't he? I think that's what God is doing here in Daniel 3. He's poking fun. Fun at the pomp and show, the pageantry of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, this is not uh, the first time, of course, that uh, God has done that. Uh, remember back in uh, Genesis 11, uh, where the people thought they would build a Tower of Babel. You know, 
We are told that the, the people tried to make a name for themselves and build a tower to reach the heavens. And God has to come down from heaven to look at it. What on earth are these human beings up to? The greatest achievement of human history at that time and God has to stoop down and have a look. And what does he do? He laughs. And I think it's more or less the same here in this passage this morning. With the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 90 feet high, we are told, or in the, um, in the modern translations, that is 27 metres. You know how high that is? That's the, the size of Myers in town. You know, it's not as wide, but it's as high as Myers. It's not as uh, tall as the structures we have in this world today. You know, we've sent men to the moon, haven't we? That's quite high. It's taken a lot of gold to do it. While three quarters of the world can't feed itself, a quarter would be busy sending men to the moon and indeed space. The point is, what's happening in chapter 3 is a display of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. It's a display of his arrogance, his ego, and more seriously, it's a demonstration of his rebellion against God. Just go back to chapter 2 and read verse 47. Here the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. These are the words of Nebuchadnezzar after God had revealed to Daniel the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he saw a statue representing the, kings, the kingdoms of the world. A stone comes, we are told, and smashes this statue to pieces and becomes a huge mountain and fills the whole earth. And God is saying something very important to Nebuchadnezzar, isn't he? What God says in verse 30 is that what Nebuchadnezzar needs to know and understand is this, that his kingdom, which is represented by the head of gold on that statue, is not going to last and will give way to another and that in turn to another, until ultimately all the kingdoms of this earth will give way to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message of the Bible, isn't it, really? It all points to the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything will give way to him. Every knee, we are told, will bow. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to hear that. Why should I give way to anyone? And so he builds this enormous statue to himself. So what he does in essence is this. He reinterprets the dream of chapter 2 to suit his own purposes. He builds a statue which is all gold, we are told. Not just the head, but it's all gold, or at least overlaid with gold. And he's making a big statement, isn't he? He's saying that what he has built represents his kingdom and that it will last forever. It's utter rebellion, isn't it? And so he sets up this statue on the plain of Jura for all to see. 
And notice how it's described that way. He set it up. He set up. It's written numerous times in our passage. Did you notice that? In verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 9. No, not in verse 9, verse 12. And it becomes personal in verse 14, that I have set up. Okay? Well, that's the nature of idolatry, isn't it? That you set up for yourself an idol that you're infatuated with. You get the drift? It's a setup. And people fall for it. Think that through for yourself. What idols have we set up in our life? And what have we fallen for? Instead of listening to the word of God through the prophet Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar sets up his own version of reality. Instead of receiving and believing God's word, he reinterprets it for himself. So he sets up this monument, this statue, this, the size of Myers, and demands that the entire nation bows down before it and worship this symbol of rebellion with all the fanfare that's available at the time. Did you notice all the instruments that would lead the people to do this? Mentioned twice, matter of fact. The harp, the zither, the lyre, the pipe and all the latest heavy metal equipment, if you like. It's a very, it's a very cleverly orchestrated event. It's like a big rock concert, isn't it? The only difference is that you have to be there. You don't have to buy tickets, just make sure you roll up. And so when all the people arrive, they're confronted with this enormous golden statue, a big rock band and a blazing furnace. What a scene. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. And so the people are intimidated, threatened, forced to bow down. Just think about that for a moment. It's like a gun pointed at your head, isn't it? Bow down and worship or die. Think about the pressure that was on Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who were in the prime of their life. Interestingly, Daniel's not here. We don't know why, we're not told. But the pressure on Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego must have been enormous. These three young men were handpicked by God to have a career in the Babylonian public service. According to chapter 1, they were handsome, without physical defect, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand. And we are told in verse 20 that they were ten times smarter than their Babylonian colleagues. Surely God doesn't want them to jeopardise all that, throw it away just for the sake of a political gesture. 
They could easily go through the motions and bow down superficially and move on in life. After all, Nebuchadnezzar had given them freedom of religion and no doubt would continue to give that. And surely God would understand that on this particular occasion they could just bow down just this once. What would have gone through their mind? It's like Abraham having received the promise of God, isn't it? And then told to sacrifice his own son. We don't always understand the ways of God's in our the way of God in our lives, do we? How he would prepare us and shape us for service, and then the unexplainable happens. And then there's the peer pressure of conforming with the rest of the people to be the only one, or in this case the only three, still standing. You know the book written by um, Boris Solzhenitsyn, Gulag Archipelago? I remember reading that book in the 70s. And he describes a situation in that book of what happened in Moscow once. It's about being the first one to stop clapping and the dramatic consequences that resulted. I quote, At the conclusion of a conference, a tribute to Comrade Stalin was called for. Of course, everyone stood up. For three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, the stormy applause rising to ovation continued. But palms were getting sore and raised arms were already aching and the older people were panting from exhaustion. It was becoming insufferably silly, even to those who really adored Stalin. However, who would dare to be the first one to stop? After all, the secret service were standing in the hall, applauding and watching to see who would quit first. And so the applause went on. Six, seven, eight minutes. They were done for. Their goose was cooked. They couldn't stop now till they collapsed with heart attacks. At the rear of the hall, which was crowded, they could, of course, cheat a bit, clap less frequently, less vigorously, but not so up the front, where everyone else could see them. Also in the front was a director of the local paper factory, an independent and strong-minded man. Aware of all the falsity and, and the impossibility of the situation, he kept on, he kept on applauding. Nine minutes, ten. In anguish, he watched the secretary of the district communist party, but even he did not dare to stop. Insanity. To the last man, with make-believe enthusiasm on their faces, looking at each other with faint hope, the district leaders were just going on and on, applauding until they fell where they stood. Till they were carried out of the hall on stretches. And even those who were left would not falter. Then after 11 minutes, the director of the paper factory assumed a business-like expression and sat down in his seat. And oh, what a miracle took place. Where had the universal, uninhibited, indescribable enthusiasm gone? To this man, everyone else stopped dead and sat down. They'd been saved. The squirrel had been smart enough to jump off the revolving wheel. The same night, the factory director was arrested. 
and they easily pasted ten years on him on the pretext of something quite different. But after he had signed Form 206, the final document of the interrogation, his interrogator reminded him, don't ever be the first to stop applauding. It's crazy, isn't it? And we would laugh at it, but only for the poor paper factory manager who ended up in Siberia for ten years for refusing to conform. A fiery furnace, we are told, awaits those who refuse to conform. That what awaited Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Where are we in all this? And then there's this other pressure that comes from the envy and hatred of others. You see, they may have got away with it without anyone noticing, but they report it, aren't they? Dobbed in. Verse 12, here are some Jews. Such an ugly thing, isn't it, racism? Here are some Jews. Anti-Semitism, fuelled by envy and hatred. Why should these Jews, these immigrants, be given all the top jobs? And so Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are slandered, misrepresented, without a chance to defend themselves. And the king's going off his head. He's furious, we are told. Another thing, there's the pressure of religion. Our religion is manipulated here to support the king in absolute power. Surely there was freedom of religion. Sure, they could uh, serve their God, Jehovah. But today you will serve me and bow before my statue that I have set up, proclaimed the king. And throughout the course of history, tyrants have forced people to comply on their demands. Religion had been used to bind people together. Think of the Roman Empire, where on one day everyone would have to hail Caesar as Lord. And those who refused were thrown to the lions. Think of Hitler during the Second World War, where he exchanged the cross, which symboled Christianity, for the swastika and the Bible for his manifesto, Mein Kampf. It's the old doctrine of Balaam, isn't it? And God hates it. Blending your faith with the ways of the world. It's all one religion, we're told. We all serve one and the same God. God is what you're making. It's happening here in Australia too, isn't it? with fundamental atheism. Tolerance is becoming the new religion. It's amazing how intolerant, tolerant people become if you stand up and hold to your convictions. The deadly cocktail of compromising your faith for political expediency is what you find right here in chapter 3. That's what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego faced 
and we haven't spoken about their psychological fears. They had a blazing furnace staring them in the face, for goodness sake. They must have been terrified. And you can't blame them, can you? They faced a dictator with absolute power who wouldn't hesitate to kill them. Throw them into the flames. That's what they were up against. The pressure to conform. The, the pressure to compromise. Compromise their principles, their convictions, to save their lives. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said? The way to save your life, your career, is to lose it for my sake and for my kingdom. Are we willing to do that? That's the challenge of the gospel personally for us today, isn't it? To take up your cross and follow him. Something else to consider. There are some things that are worse than death. Listen to what uh, Don Carson writes in his book, How Long, O Lord? I don't know whether you've read it, but Don Carson reflects on his own life. He was diagnosed with a chronic illness that threatened his life. And he says this, I would rather die than be unfaithful to my wife. I would rather die than live a reckless life contrary to what I have taught in my books. I would rather die than deny or disown the gospel. Well, it's true, isn't it? There are some things worse than death. Friends, God knows there are many things in my past and I'm sure in yours that I'm deeply ashamed of. And the question is, are we prepared to die? Then have them, then have them exposed and so dishonour the name of Christ. You see, we as Christians are watched intently by the world around us. Like a hawk focused on its prey, we are scrutinised to see if we are the real deal, to see if we believe what we say we believe. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had the eyes of all those thousands of people around them on them. Now, what are you going to do? <coughs> o King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O King. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What a testimony. They're fantastic words, aren't they? 
and we need to appreciate the depth of them. For I believe that they are often misunderstood by modern Christians today. Even if he doesn't. Now some would see that as a lapse in their faith. So that in verse 17 they have faith in God for a miracle and then their faith wobbles a bit in verse 18. Even if he doesn't. It's a bit much, isn't it, to expect God to save them from the furnace? I believe that misses the point. It would be wrong to think that. Yes, they say, believe that God can rescue us from the furnace, but if he doesn't, then their faith changes, but not down, up. Even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or the image of gold you have set up. That's a testimony of real faith, isn't it? To trust God when he doesn't change the circumstances you find yourself in. That's not lesser faith. That's greater faith. That's the faith that Job had when in his greatest need, having suffered tremendously at the hands of Satan, would still say, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. How my heart yearns within me. This is the faith that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had in a time of crisis. And what an impact it had on all the officials of the, the, that were around there at the time, all the VIPs that were witnessing them, all the people that were scattered around, not excluding the king himself. And what do you think they were talking about when they went back to their hotels that night? The golden statue? Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're talking about an invisible God who gave Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego the courage to die rather than deny him. That's where the chapter ends up, doesn't it? And that's the type of witness we need in our churches today. Not the health and wealth gospel. You claim it, you name it, you claim it and God will give it to you. That in your deepest need you know that your Redeemer lives and that is right alongside you. The writer of Hebrews says in that wonderful chapter 11, that, that hall of faith, about those whose faith quenched the fury of the flames. He's referring to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, isn't he? By faith, we are told, they quenched the fury of the flames. So what is this faith that would quench the fury of the flames? What faith did they have? Faith is not mind over matter, is it? The writer of Hebrews would say, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. He would go on to say, faith is looking to Jesus. 
right through chapter 11 to chapter 12, it all points to those who had faith and were focused on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Faith is nothing in and of itself unless it's a looking away from oneself and looking to Jesus it's of no use to you whatsoever. The Apostle John in his first letter, chapter 5, would say this. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our world, our circumstances. How do you overcome the world? Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. I believe what Nebuchadnezzar saw in the blazing furnace was someone who's always there but rarely seen. He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus standing in the furnace alongside his loved ones. Remember what Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name, I will be with you. When two or three are gathered in my name whether it's here in church, whether it's out in the mission field, or bound up in a blazing furnace, I will be with you. God's promise of deliverance is scattered through the whole Bible. In fact, this is what the Bible consistently promises. God delivering people through Jesus. And notice that God delivered Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego not from the furnace, but in the furnace. And that's a much greater deliverance, isn't it? That's what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8. You heard that last week. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. In all these things, not from these things, in all these things. And what things? Trouble? Hardship, persecution, remember? Famine, nakedness, danger, sword, blazing furnace. In all these things. The only thing that wasn't burnt, sorry, the only thing that was burnt in the furnace was the rope that bound them. They had been set free. Even their eyes, eyebrows weren't singed, we're told, and they didn't even smell like smoke. How many people are searching for help, deliverance, salvation, and are looking in the wrong places? You'll agree with me that deep down, all of us desire relief in our lives.
Where are we seeking this relief? Do you go to the movies? How many movies have plots where it's all about rescue, deliverance? Lots, isn't it? And sadly, movies would tell us that it's about human achievement, heroes, human effort. I have a friend who continually challenges my faith and tells me, Ben, you can't trust anyone. No one. No, not one person. Not even the so-called God, the so-called God that you believe in. Do it yourself. You know what you've got when you do it yourself, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a natural inclination to fix it yourself. Sounds attractive. But I know myself too well to know where I end up. Let's look at uh, the last part of verse 15 in our chapter. Nebuchadnezzar was no different. What God will save you, he says. How many think that they can save themselves or control their lives like Nebuchadnezzar? What God would be able to rescue you? And their reply? The God we serve, the God we love, is able to save us and will rescue us from your hand. And Nebuchadnezzar has to agree, doesn't he, in verse 29. No other God can save in this way, he says. No other God. And so where is salvation to be found? In the God who walks with us in the fire. For all those who walk with him, not a hair will be singed, nor the smell of smoke will be found on them. Friends, this is real life stuff. This is not just a theory. We can so easily do that, can't we? Theorise it all. Believe in the theory. It needs to go from an understanding of whom God is and what he's done in Jesus and saturate our hearts and that it would translate into the way we live, the way we think, the things we do, the words we speak. If we are only believing the theory, then this chapter would tell us to repent. If we are still relying on our own strength, our own wisdom, our own cleverness, then this chapter would tell us to repent. If we are still compromising our faith and flirting with the world, then this chapter would tell us to repent. Friends, this is serious stuff. You can't muck around with this. Don't just theorise it all. 
Let's wind up. We aren't told, are we, what happened to the fourth figure. What happened to him? The one who was like the Son of God, that divine human figure that Nebuchadnezzar saw in the furnace. What happened to him? Does he also come out unscathed? Well, we know from the New Testament that he doesn't. We are told of the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His name's Jesus. You believe that? Is he the one who's walking with you in your furnace? Is he? Praise God if he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. and his love for people. That he would commit himself to a burning furnace that we might never perish. Father, thank you for your spirit that would convict us of these things and redirect our thinking, if necessary, to live for you that we wouldn't compromise and that we wouldn't conform to the ways of this world. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and how precious that is to us to know and to believe and to live that Jesus is Lord and King in our lives. So bless us in his name. Amen.